So this is really, really timely. It's really beautiful. And I'm tempted to just dive into our text because it's really beautiful. But Jesus kind of messes up that plan by starting our passage with a therefore. And like, I don't know if you know this, but you can't just sort of pick up any passage of scripture and pretend like it's not connected to the whole. There's this thing called context. And this section on anxiety, right, is a section that comes out of a logical argument, an argument with soul and reason that Jesus is making about our relationship with money. And it's fascinating that Jesus like unpacks this whole idea of how we handle money as the lead in, as the predicate for how we navigate a world of anxiety with peace as we follow the king. So let me sum up what Chad covered really beautifully last week. I I got to sit here and just worship and sit under the preaching of the word. It was good for my soul. So let me just remind you of what we covered, and then we'll dive in to this section on anxiety. Like, Jesus says three things, and if you're not a Christian, these would be three things to really open your ears to, because in some ways, these three things are the very heartbeat of becoming a Christian, right? If you are a Christian, these are three things that you got to come back to multiple times a day, right? You've got to carry these things multiple times a day. Here are the three. One, your treasure, what you love most, what you value most, what you pursue most earnestly, your treasure will direct, form, and reveal your heart. So like what you treasure is going to direct the trajectory of your life, It's going to form your life in profound ways, and it's also going to reveal the ways in which you've already been formed. And this is really important because we've got a lot of problems as human beings. Can I get a hearty amen from the honest people in the room? Right? It's difficult to be a human being. We've got all kinds of challenges and problems, not the least of which is that our loves are all out of whack. Our loves are out of whack. See, I think a lot of us think that we're really logical beings, right? Like we're biocomputers and you're running complex calculus to make your decisions on the daily. You're thinking about who you're going to marry and career path and all that stuff. And you might think that you're more like Spock than what you really are in your logical evaluation of what are the good options and what are the right choices. But what the Bible says about humanity And what good theologians like St. Augustine have said about humanity is that you're not first and foremost a thinking being. You're first and foremost a creature of desire. You're a loving thing. And the problem with human beings is that because of sin, our loves are distorted and our loves are disordered. We love lesser things like greater things. We love greater things less than we love lesser things. And barring a miraculous intervention of grace, nobody loves God. And loving God is not only our highest good, it's not only the telos of what it means to be a human being or the end for which you were created. Loving God is the only way that a human being can actually thrive and flourish because that's what you were created for. You were created to be loved by God and to love God. And because of sin, our loves are all like tangled up and pointing in the wrong direction And because of that disordered love, listen, what you treasure, what you treasure has unbelievable power to form you over time. Right, man? Like you set your treasure on created things instead of creator, your greatest treasure. You set your greatest treasure on career. You set your greatest treasure on pleasures like food and sex. You set your greatest treasure 
on having a stable family or a good marriage. And I'm just telling you, what you're actually doing is worshiping those things. And those things are really good gifts, but they make terrible gods. They make terrible gods. And what's so amazing, what's so amazing is that that idea of treasure is what Jesus came to address. Jesus came to open our eyes to what the true treasure is that he is the treasure and his kingdom is the treasure and becoming a Christian is nothing short of selling the field to get the treasure. It's going all in to get the treasure. So your treasure is going to direct your life. It's going to form your life and it's going to reveal your hearts. Secondly, though, where you set your vision is also going to set your direction. Like, and I'm not just talking about glances. I'm not just talking about your eyes. I'm talking about like the eyes of your heart. What you behold is going to shape what you become. Jesus puts it like this, verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. By the way, this text is super weird. Like this is the one where Mardell's has never put this text on a coffee cup. It's just very strange, very strange words. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And Chad did a great job unpacking that at depth last week. Let me just try to do a flyover. I think part of what Jesus is saying is that beholding light, beholding light, and that's one of the ways Christ is described, that he is the light of the world. He moved into the darkness. He came to illuminate truth and meaning and beauty and that which is ultimate Beholding light fills you with light, and being filled with light makes you want to behold light. Where on the flip side, like beholding darkness fills you with darkness. I think what Jesus is saying here, man, is that what you set your vision on, the thing that you are intentionally beholding, like another way to put it is that which captures your gaze most frequently. Do you know what I mean? the version of the good life that you're looking at is either going to fill you with life or it's going to fill you with darkness. And we're surrounded with all of these versions of the good life, right? Uh, I keep getting on Instagram and then getting off Instagram because it's so dadgum compulsive, isn't it? It's like everything I look at on Instagram other than like really funny memes is, uh, is like versions of the good life. It's all the spearfishing trips that I don't get to go on and the hunting trips I can't afford. And it's all of the raw denim that I would like to buy that's too expensive. (laughs) And I know that's kind of funny. That's kind of funny. But listen, the whole point of what we're doing right now on this morning is to intentionally, with a focused and deliberate, a focused and deliberate gathering of ourselves together is to set what is ultimately the good life in front of one another. That it's not money, it's not food, it's not vacation, it's not the next experience, it's not climbing the career ladder, it's not the approval of your peers. The good life is found in and through Jesus Christ. So if you've noticed, man, every song we just sang is about the good news of God's gospel. It's about who God is. It's about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Those are our prayers. Those are our confessions. Why? Because what you behold is what you're going to be formed into. And when you behold and look at Jesus, that has power to form you. Uh, Like, so I'm not a very good mountain biker, but Oklahoma mountain biking trails 
consistently convince me that I'm an intermediate mountain biker. Do you know what I mean? Like we're at sea level and we call it mountain biking here, but it's more like muddy creek biking. And what happens every couple of years is I'll like get back into mountain biking. I'll start riding Oklahoma trails and then I'll start doing pretty good, cutting off time on my laps. I'm like, man, I'm an intermediate mountain biker. And then I'll go to Colorado, right? And I'll look at my map and be like, hey, this is an intermediate trail, which is appropriate for me as an intermediate mountain biker. And then usually after about five minutes, I'm on the side of the trail, I'm bleeding, I'm hurting. I'm like, I'm not an intermediate mountain biker. Now, what am I, why am I telling you that? Because what happens on the trail in Colorado is when your eye gets off of the line, when your eye's not on the line, when your eye's not in front of you, when you're not looking right ahead, your bike is going to follow your vision. And if I look over here, if I get distracted by the pretty elk over there, where's my bike going to go? It's going to move off the path. It's the same thing as you and me. That's why, again and again, we invite you into community groups. We invite you to take ownership of your own spiritual formation. This is why Bible study and spiritual disciplines and prayer are so important, not because they make God love you more, but because they help you love God more. They keep your eye on the lights. Amen. So three things. One, your treasure is going to direct, it's going to form, and it's going to reveal your heart. Number two, where you set your vision is going to shape your direction. And number three, you're going to serve somebody. Jesus said it before Bob Dylan. You're going to serve somebody. And I know, man, like we have a lot of cool independent people in our church. I got a lot of friends that are atheist agnostic that feel like, hey, man, I don't serve anybody. I am my own ultimate authority. And yet here's the reality. Like Jesus puts it like this. No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. Meaning, you're going to have either the capital G, God, be your Lord, and there's going to be surrender, there's going to be submission, there's going to be authority, or you're going to have lower G gods that aren't really gods, like career and money and pleasure and the approval of people be your functional savior. And the difference is there's one God that was willing to be devoured for you and all the other gods just want to devour you. So if you think today that it's your freedom and independence, that's your ultimate authority, that's your ultimate light, like I just got to point out that that's your God and that's a God that didn't die for you, but that's a God that's going to isolate you and ultimately eat you. So those three things those three things, this idea of treasure and the power that it has to form you and reveal where you're being formed, this idea that your vision is going to shape you, it's going to mold you, so you got to behold light, you got to come back to the gospel, you got to sing the gospel and pray the gospel and look at the gospel, and this idea that, man, like, you are created to worship, so you're going to submit, surrender, and serve someone or something, and the only someone or something that's worthy of being worshiped and served is the one true God that sent his son in Jesus. That leads to Jesus' therefore. Are you with me? That, that leads to our relationship with anxiety, and that leads to these words. So let me read it to you again, and we'll talk about it real briefly. Verse 25, therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or about your body as to what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? 
Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Look at those words again. Your heavenly Father. Your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. They neither grow, they don't toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow was thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, don't be anxious saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? Or shall What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, here's what I want to do quickly. Jesus is saying a few things about anxiety, and he's saying a few things about the answer to anxiety. Here's what he says about anxiety. One, being fully human is so much more than the things that we typically worry about. He's like, hey man, life doesn't consist in what you're going to wear or what you're going to eat. Meaning, Jesus came, the Bible says, that we might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus came that we could flourish. That's the theme of the whole Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus's great discourse on true human flourishing in submission to him and participation in his kingdom. So what he's saying is a lot of the things that we think are the answer to the good life, even if you had all those things, they're going to fall so short of true human flourishing. And doesn't this bear out in the news like every single day? Like, Here are people on the news that have everything you would ever dream of, like dudes with abs. Have you ever seen guys that even have the low ab right here? That's a thing. That's a thing. People can get that. If you pay enough money and starve yourself and never eat bread or ever have an IPA and neglect your family and spend all your time in the gym, you can have abs up here and even right here. There are dudes with abs and money and vacations and cars. And then when they get really honest, here's what comes out. They're just, they're just empty. They're empty. You talk to anybody in this church that has made it financially, that set the goal of like, I want to get to a million bucks. And they got to that goal. What happens when they get to that goal? You have to move the goalpost back because it didn't answer what was wrong with you. So we stretched the goalpost. Now it's 2 million. And if you get to 2 million, guess what? Now it's got to be 3 million because that ain't getting to what's broken in here. The things we worry about fall short of real human flourishing. Secondly, this is just good common sense. Jesus said this way before pop psychiatrist. Anxiety actually doesn't do anything positive. He's like, can you add a single minute to your lifespan by worrying? We could do a quick experiment. We could all try real fast. (laughs) Worry real hard and then check your bank account, see if it's better. Jesus is just pointing out the obvious, like anxiety has no power. Anxiety, anxiety is all about the illusion of control. That if we worry enough about this stuff, our worry is actually gonna shape and bend reality and matter to our wishes. 
It just doesn't work, man. You can worry about your teenagers all the time, and I do. Not because my teenagers are bad, but just because I love them. But none of that worry actually forms or shapes or changes anything. It can't add a minute to your life. Third, Jesus says, and this is a real problem if you're a follower of Jesus, anxiety makes us look like the Gentiles. It makes us look like the Gentiles, meaning like in their day and age, the Gentiles were pagans. They weren't irreligious. They were very religious. And they had all these gods and all these goddesses. And their whole culture of religion was one of anxiety and appeasement. So you got to make your sacrifice because that God's going to get really mad at you and they might thump you if you don't make your sacrifice. You better not forget your sacrifice. You better do enough sacrificing and then you better worry and be anxious that your sacrifice is going to be found pleasing to the God. And they were so stressed about it, they even, made, they even made shrines and altars to the unknown God, which is like, oh man, we rolled the dice. We think we hit all the gods, but we probably miss one. Let's cover all of our bases. Meaning they just lived under constant anxiety about, about these, these forces, these divine forces that were capricious and sometimes even evil in their intentions toward people. And look at me, when you're a Christian and anxiety grips us and we don't bring that anxiety to our father, we're at best acting like functional atheists. And at worst, we're acting like pagans, wondering if God is even pleased with us and if he even sees us. And what the Bible says is that because of the sacrifice of Jesus, if you've trusted in Christ, the very pleasure the Father has in his only begotten son, he has in you. So whatever bad is happening in your life today, if you're a follower of Jesus, it's not because the Father's turned his back on you. He couldn't turn his back on you because he turned his back on his only begotten son, to graft you in. And then this leads to something really interesting. It leads to the positive side. What Jesus wants to do is he wants to show us that like childlike faith, childlike faith is God's remedy for crippling anxiety. Childlike faith is God's remedy for this. In Matthew 18, Jesus called a child and he put him in the midst of his disciples and he said this, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Has anybody else ever wondered what the heck Jesus was talking about here? It sounds really weird. It sounds really confusing. Even saying childlike faith, for some of you, that's like, oh man, that feels really good and warm and fuzzy. And some of you are like, that seems really immature and ridiculous. So here's what I mean, and we're going to walk through this text in just a second. But when, when we talk about childlike faith, we're talking about a unique relationship with God the Father that's purchased for you through God the Son. Childlike faith is a relationship with your Father that's not childish. It's not childish, but it's a relationship rooted and grounded in paternal, sovereign care and provision. So here's what I don't mean. I don't mean it's childish as in, oh, hey, the Bible says the birds don't reap or sow. The Bible says the lilies don't have to toil. Therefore, I'm just going to chill out and God's going to provide a Big Mac for me. No, man, like it's, that's childish. That's irresponsibility. That's irresponsibility. You're not spiritual because you never save money. That doesn't make you spiritual. 
It doesn't make you spiritual not having insurance. It just means that you're going to be a burden if something happens to you. Can I get an amen? Too honest? Do I need to reel that back? Okay, it, it doesn't make you spiritual if you do a crappy job at work and just send people bad, precious moments, religious memes when you should be being productive. That doesn't make you spiritual, right? Paul said, if you don't work, don't eat. Martin Luther put it like this. Martin Luther would have not done well on today's social media. He, he said this, God wants nothing to do with the lazy, gluttonous bellies who are neither concerned nor busy. They act as if they just had to sit and wait for him to drop a roasted goose in their mouth. I love that. Luther, man, throwing bows. He, he, he's saying the truth. He's saying this text about childlike faith is not childish irresponsibility because God gave you gifts and God wants you to steward your gifts. God wants us to work really hard, right? Also, childlike faith is not childish entitlement and being spoiled brats. A lot of us think that to become a Christian means that God is now the means to the end and that God's greatest commitment in our lives is just to make us comfortable and happy. So I'm going to come to God and he's going to guarantee that I get the right spouse, that I always get the promotion, that I always get healed. Hey, listen, that is a false gospel. And you know, like a dad that only takes his kids to Disneyland is a bad dad. That's a bad dad. A dad that bubble wraps his kids every time they leave the house so that they can never get bumps and bruises and learn, that's a bad dad. A dad that never spanks that butt or whatever the culturally appropriate equivalent of that is, <laughs> that's a bad dad. A father that loves his kids is disciplining them and is more committed to their formation, to their character, to them being launched out of the house in a healthy way. A dad that's committed to that more than the kid's happiness as culture defines it, that's actually being a good dad. So what is childlike faith? If it's not irresponsibility and entitlement, what is it? Let me just give you these quickly. And these things are starting to get into my soul. Um, I want to live out of these. These are so beautiful. One, childlike faith is knowing that children are way more valuable than sparrows. That's what Jesus says in verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? He's making an argument from a lesser to a greater. God as creator cares about birds. He cares about blue whales. He cares about the environment. He cares about his creation. He loves his creation, but everything in this world falls short of the affection and the commitment that our father has for those that have trusted in Jesus and become sons and daughters. Meaning, if the creator knows when a bird falls out of the sky, like just stop for a second. Don't just hear this with your head. What would it actually mean for your daily anxiety if you believed that the sovereign God who created everything from nothing delights in referring to you as my beloved child? What would that do? If he loved you so much that he gave his son to die for you, doesn't that also mean that he's not going to forget you? He's not going to bail on you? 
He's not going to turn his back on you. He's not going to give you up. You're way more valuable than sparrows. You're a daughter. You're a son. You're adopted into his family. He is committed to you. Secondly, childlike faith knows that children are more permanent than lilies. They're more permanent than lilies. Jesus has this strange verse where he talks about the lilies of the field neither toil nor spin, yet God clothes them with more glory than Solomon, and yet they're alive one day and the next day they're thrown into the oven. What's he talking about? He's saying this, man. If God bestows a particular, a particular kind of glory on wildflowers, and he does, right? One of my favorite things to do is go hike this time of year. It's just amazing, man. You get into the mountains this time of year, awesome to just get out there into fields and meadows and to get up to tree line and you just see life happening everywhere. God's just prodigal in the way that he gives life. Flowers of all kinds and smells of all kinds coming out of those flowers. And yet those flowers are so temporary, man. They, they grow and they can be thrown into the oven the next day. And yet, here's what you got to know. You are an immortal image bearer of the most high God, meaning Your body's going to die, but you will have a new resurrected body because of Jesus, and you are going to last forever. Therefore, if God is committed to giving glory to the flowers, wouldn't he care for, provide for, and give glory to a creature like you, to a being like you that is literally going to last forever? There's a permanence to you as a child of God. Thirdly, childlike faith is knowing that children can know their heavenly father understands what they need. Right? We, a, a child that has a good dad is not afraid to ask for what he or she needs. I'm not saying I'm a good dad. I've, I've fallen short so many times with my kids. One of the sayings I've tried to tell my kids over and over, which I stole from somebody and you can steal it from me. Like I've told my kids there will be a day where you will have to sit down with a counselor or with a pastor and talk about ways where I fell short and it affected you and hurt you. And in that day, you're not dishonoring me. I want you to have that conversation. <laughs> like, because we fall short. Like, I'm, I mess up. I got issues. And yet, when I know that my kids have needs, dude, come on. I'll do everything I can to move heaven and earth to get them what they need. And this text says, Don't be like the Gentiles. Your heavenly father knows you need these things. He knows you need a job. He knows you need food. He knows you need shelter. He knows you need relationships of trust. He knows what you need and he cares about what you need. I'll skip to the last one. The last one, number five. Children know that each day has sufficient trouble and sufficient grace. And this may be one of the greatest places where we can dispel anxiety. Jesus says at the end, verse 34, therefore don't be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is really loaded because like he's saying a couple of things. He's saying, don't live in anxious fantasy. Does anybody else do that? Play out all the ways that things can go badly. Just saying, don't do that. You don't know the future. You don't control the future. And here's what he guarantees. Every day is going to have its own trouble. And, and every day is going to have sufficient grace 
for that day's trouble. This is amazing. Tomorrow morning, you're going to get up and a lot of us in this room, if not all of us, are going to have unique troubles that are going to arise. Some are going to be just the, the commonplace, ordinary troubles of getting out of bed, having to go to work, dealing with three-year-olds, who I've always said are cute but terrible people. Three-year-olds are just awful people. Right? We're going to have troubles in our marriages. We're going to have troubles carrying our singleness in a way that glories God. We're going to have troubles worrying about bills. There are going to be troubles tomorrow. But here's what Scripture promises for you, and it really is a promise. This is something you can bank on. If you belong to Jesus, his supply of grace, his supply of provision, of presence, of mercy, his supply of everything you need to stand in the day of trouble is going to be sufficient to meet the troubles head on. Today, there's some of you carrying heavy troubles and you wonder if the supply of grace for today's troubles is going to be enough. And the promise of your father in Jesus is that it will be, that he wants to meet you. What this leads us to in closing is this. Anxiety for a follower of Jesus is going to happen in your heart. You're going to have a physical emotional response to troubling stimuli. Things are going to happen. You're going to get stressed. Fight or flight's going to kick in. You're going to feel it in your body. I don't know where you carry anxiety. I feel it in my chest. I carry it up here. These are just like, usually just like church planter knots. I've got a knot for every year of frontline. But here's what you got to get for a Christian, for a Christian when you feel the anxiety, Jesus' invitation, do not be anxious, is an invitation to let that anxiety lead you back to the presence of your Father in the finished work of the Son. It's an invitation to communion. You feel the anxiety. What do I do with that? Do I medicate it? Do I run from it? Do I act out on it? Do I lash out? Do I retreat? Do I fight? Do I hide? For a follower of Jesus, what Jesus wants for you is for that anxiety to be an invitation to cast your cares on him because he cares for you. To come to the father in the finished work of the son through the power of the Holy Spirit and to hear his voice that he's near you and he's with you. And even if the trouble is really big, like I'm talking varsity level cancer-sized trouble. I'm talking about potential divorce-sized trouble. I'm talking about the death of someone that you love-sized trouble. There's a God who didn't spare his own son, but freely gave him for you to make you a participant of his family and his kingdom. And he promised you that even the darkest things and the worst days, he's working together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. So you can carry your anxiety. You can bring it to him. You can lay it down in front of him. You can hear the words of life that he speaks to you in his word Anxiety can be an invitation to deeper communion with your father.